0: Yeah, I feel like the levels on this show have been a little bit hot and scratchy. What we call hot and scratchy lately. I don't know, I'm trying to figure that out. It'll never be a professional sounding show. What do you think I am? You think I'm some kind of audio pedophile? You think I'm some kind of audio pedophile and I get perfect sound? Like I know how to get perfect sound? An audio pedophile. The elites are audio pedophiles. In case you didn't know. They're not just pedophiles. They're not just pedo. They're not just uh, pedophiles. They're audiophiles too. It makes it that much worse. It's what we call a, a is that a comorbidity? If you're both an audiophile and a pedophile, is that called a comorbidity? What is that? I don't think so. But I, I just want to give a little, show a little gratitude. This is we're going to start every episode out showing what we call a little gratitude. It's always a funny one. It's good to be. It's good to have gratitude. It turns out it's good to have gratitude, but it's funny how that's one of those catchwords, catchphrases, buzzwords, catchwords. I'm going to call them catchwords because they catch you. But no, I do want to show a little gratitude. Two people contacted me to let me know the song in that music box. You know, I did. I did a little outsourcing. In that last episode because I was uh, what do you call that crowdsourcing I did a little crowdsourcing in that last episode because I needed to identify the melody on that music box that I played if you heard the last episode and two people in different parts of the world contacted me to let me know that it was green so I just want to say some thanks to Joe in England She let me know it was green sleeves. And Daniel Dantia in California also let me know it was green sleeves. And they, you know, I compared my sources. I compared my sources. I had two different people in different parts of the world who said it was green sleeves. Here I was thinking it was where, oh, where has my little dog gone? My small dog. how, How does that song go? Where, oh, where has my small dog gone? Is it little dog or small dog? But here I was thinking it was where, oh, where is my little dog gone? And I looked that up and I I heard it. And like every example I heard was like a hoedown. It was like listening to a hoedown. Is that how that normally goes? It was just YouTube videos of really ugly, bad digital cartoons with like hoedown music. And, you know, to my credit, like that melody is there is kind of a similar rhythm, maybe a little bit of a there's there's a little bit of a similarity to the melody. I mean, I don't know. I'm not an audio pedophile, so I can't tell you if the notes match. But there's a similarity. They have kind of a you know, it's almost like where oh, where has my little dog gone ripped off green sleeves, which might be the lesson in all this. That might be that might be what we've learned from all this. But no, I want to say thanks to both of you who let me know that it was Green Sleeves. I should have known that. I should have known because you know I know Green Sleeves, but apparently not well enough to recognize the melody by ear. So thank you guys. Doing a little crowdsourcing. I can. I'm. I'm understanding the value of crowdsourcing. That's one of those catchphrases. Like that idea was introduced to people a few years ago. Like somebody came up with the phrase crowdsourcing. And just like every catchphrase, every buzzword, you heard it a million times after that. Well, what we're doing is we are... What we are doing with our company is we are developing a crowdsourcing platform. (laughs) That's how people talk, you know. We're developing a crowdsourcing platform... It's called a megaphone where we yell things into a crowd and they yell back. And I've been thinking a lot about catchphrases and buzzwords again. Because as I've said before, it's like you got to resist the urge to adopt those too early. You know, as much as I don't like being one of the last people to adopt something, I don't like being one of the last people to hop on a trend. I think language is one example where it's good to do that because it's mind control. Mind control is never more evident than in new catchphrases and buzzwords, especially when they spread online, because they spread so quickly, and people are so eager to start using them. You have old people who pick them up, like some old guy heard crowd, heard young people saying crowdsourcing, and he's like, oh, is this, what, is this crowdsourcing? I think they're doing a little crowdsourcing. You know, you, you old people who pick them up because they think that's how they stay current, And I want to say to old people, I want to be like, your ideas are better than these ideas. Like whatever it is that's gotten you to 70 years old, whatever ideas and words you have, just stick with those because they're probably better than what we're using. But, you know, you can see where people are so eager and, you know, some of those are when they describe something. But then if it describes a real phenomenon or even if it doesn't, even if it's just kind of made up. You can see where once there's a buzzword or a catchphrase to go along with that idea, people start trying to fit it in wherever they can find it. I mean, a good example is the atrocious term mansplaining. Where, yeah, maybe women were describing a real phenomenon that they experienced. I wouldn't be able to tell you because my experience with other men is that we're always arguing with each other. We're always telling each other things that we don't want to hear. It's not something we just do to women. We do it to each other all the time. But we don't respond and go, you're mansplaining. No, you're mansplaining to me. It's like men are just doing that to each other all the time. All the time. Friends do it to each other. Strangers do it to each other. I've never known men to approach another man... I've never known a man to approach another man and be like, you know what? I'm not going to mansplain to him because I respect him so much as a fellow man that I'm just going to assume he knows what he's talking about. He knows everything. Hell no. Men go up to other men and try to tell them everything. They argue all the time, all the time. I'm willing to believe that there is a certain experience women have where they feel that a man is talking down to them or trying to explain a concept to them that they already know. I do question how much of that is actually directed to them as a woman. Maybe sometimes, but not every time. But I can't tell you. I'm not a woman. I don't know what it's like. I'm not a woman who's ever had a conversation with a man, so I can't tell you whether or not that's a real phenomenon or not. But I know that women felt that was a real phenomenon that men have a tendency to kind of, you know, patronize them to talk down to them, to try to explain things that don't need explaining. And I feel like most explanations fall into that category. As I say time and time again, I make a distinction between an explanation and a description. And anytime that I feel someone is explaining, I kind of feel like they're lying. I feel like they're being manipulative. They're avoiding giving a simple description. All you have to do is describe. He's manscribing to me. Oh, dude, this... Do you know that guy on every Night's a school night? Like he he's always manscribing to women. It's better to manscribe than it is to mansplain. But I feel the same the way women seem to feel about mansplaining is how I feel about explaining. I think the problem isn't in the person doing the explaining. It's in the explaining itself. Anytime you're explaining something, you're filled with hubris And you're probably trying to add some kind of spin or context or act like you actually know what you're talking about when a description is fine. Description is where it's at, you know. But you can see where like, let's just I mean, let's say there is a real phenomenon where women feel that men treat them a certain way. And that it is best described As mansplaining I mean, nothing is best described that way The whole prefix I mean, this is This is, you know Elementary school talk here This is basic here If you don't know this Well, you know You got a lot to learn Which is that, you know Anytime somebody puts the prefix man On anything In this kind of funny, cute way You can just throw it out You can just throw it right out Again, this is obvious stuff. This is below me to talk about, but it's like when the phrase man cave got big, you actually had real estate agents walking people through houses saying like, well, and it's got a man cave that used to just called be called the den. Like my family never had a den, but you'd go over to friends' houses and they'd be like, oh, we got to go to the, let's go into the den. And I always thought it was a little weird, but it did it did kind of feel like a den. It was usually the dad's place. There was usually like some... Com- it was kind of dark. The den was usually dark. It was usually where the dad hung out. There were places to lounge around. But it was a place where the dad could put his things, and it was just called the den. And maybe if I were, you know, 50 years older... I would have felt the same way about the word den They call it a den. We used to call it the the parlor or whatever. I don't know. But you know, that was a bad one. We all know that was a bad one man cave and you know, the way that's used. I mean, I don't even need to tell you why that's obnoxious, but that mutated into using that for other things. And, uh, you know, mansplaining became something that, you know, let's just say like women felt that men do that. They feel that men do that. Maybe they do. But you can see where like that was a light bulb moment for a lot of people where they're like, oh, yeah, that is something men do to us. But then because it became this new catchphrase or buzzword, people wanted to use it. They were excited by it. And this is what happens with every buzzword and catchphrase is that it's created To give you a simple way of describing a phenomenon or something that happens, an event, a a behavior. But then people start looking for opportunities to use it because they're so giddy and excited that they have a new word they can use. That they start looking for opportunities to use it. And next thing you know, I mean, I remember hanging out with friends of mine around the time that phrase got big. And you'd meet up for drinks and, you know, a, a young woman would, would just sit down and be like, oh, God, this I, I went at work today. This coworker of mine, was, he, he just kept mansplaining to me. He just kept, oh, God, I, I got mansplained, too. And it's kind of like this boy who cried wolf thing. It's the girl who cried mansplaining where they would describe what happened and you'd be like, it doesn't even sound, you know, I'm not going to, I wouldn't say anything. I wouldn't challenge it. Because I understand they're probably just venting. But uh, I would hear what they said about like how they were mansplained to and I was just like doesn't even sound like the guy was trying to tell you it sounds like he was just trying to have a conversation with you. And, uh, you know, so I'm, here I am, I'm mansplaining, mansplaining to you right now. And I hate to even say that word. I actually feel every time you use that word, do you know, it takes seven years off your life. You lose 200 brain cells, 200, they measured it. They hook up, they hooked up a bunch of electrodes to a monk. And they had him say the word mansplaining, and they noticed that he lost 200 brain cells every time he used it. Every time he used it, the robes that the monk was wearing burned off him, and he was naked sitting there. But uh, it's, it's one of those things where because it became this new phrase, and people were like, oh, that's a thing, yeah. It became an opportunity to use it. But when you have a new phrase like that, you're eager to use it. And so you start using it for all kinds of things that probably don't qualify. And of course, there's no science to it. It's a completely subjective experience. Like if you're having a bad interaction with somebody or if you simply don't like them, because here's the thing, too. Like if you're if a woman is having a conversation with a man and she simply doesn't like him. She's probably going to feel more, she's, she's way more likely to feel like he is mansplaining to her if he starts going off about something. If she likes him, she's probably more likely to give him the benefit of the doubt and engage him in the conversation. But I don't know what it's like to be a woman. I have no clue what it's like to be a woman. Maybe there is a certain behavior. I mean, there are certain ways that women talk that bother me. And I think women should be able to complain about that. I think the only issue is that it plays into this idea of oppression and victimhood. I think that's my only issue. If it was just women like venting and saying like, oh, don't you hate it when guys just ramble on to you and act like you don't know anything. But because that's coupled with this socio-political movement where it's like mansplaining is part of toxic masculinity And therefore, it contributes to our oppression. You know, that's the issue with it, too, is just that it's when someone complains about it, it's not just, oh, I was really annoyed by a guy today. Or I don't like the way men talk about things, because that's part of it. Like I said, men are doing this to each other all the time. Men are talking that way to each other all the time. There's no, like, common understanding between men. And I feel honestly, I feel that I'm generally respected. Like other men have never really talked down to me. Like, yeah, like sometimes you'll, you'll get a vibe that another man sees you as competition or something. But I've never been treated like I'm the weakling or I'm like inferior to another men. Men just don't tend to treat me that way. Not that they tend to treat me like I'm... Not that they put me on a pedestal or anything, not that I, they give me any credit necessarily, but they don't tend to try to knock me down a peg. But I still experience it all the time where other men will just kind of try to tell you things. They'll try to kind of act like you don't know, you, you you know, it's just that I think it's just a common behavior. But... uh you know, so so I mean, it's like I think that I think men and women need to be able to complain about each other for one. Like my feelings aren't hurt that women say men do certain things that are annoying or they don't like or are obnoxious. I think it's good that women can get together and say, hey, have you ever noticed that men talk to you this way? Yeah, let's call it this. I think that's a good thing. I just think that it. it it's just that every interaction like that shouldn't be seen as part of some oppressive you know it shouldn't be seen as part of like some uh I mean you know what I'm getting at it just it shouldn't be politicized to the the degree it has been because I mean I talk on here all the time about how women talk in this therapy language all the time this sort of pop therapy sort of language They often talk to you like you're a child. Like sometimes when you're talking to a woman these days, you feel like they're reading from a children's book. Oh, do you feel this way? You know, and it's like that's not how I think and talk. So when I feel like you're talking to me like you're reading a children's book out loud to a bunch of kids, I don't like that. I don't like the way that a lot of modern women communicate in this sort of, it's as if you're in a therapy session. I don't, I don't personally like that. And I think it's good that men can vent about that. Hey, you ever notice how women talk this way to you? You notice how that women sometimes talk to you like you're in a freaking kindergarten class? But I wouldn't necessarily, you know, I could see where that's part of a social trend. I can see where that's, you know, just the way things have gone. But I don't think it's an entirely horrible thing either. You know, I don't think it's you know, necessarily destructive. But the problem is, is, is people, when they learn a new buzzword or catchphrase, they immediately want to use it and they look for opportunities to use it. And as a result, they start using it for things that don't really apply to the original description that that word was created to simplify. And uh, especially when it's a word that's being used to target somebody or target a certain behavior and demonize it. I mean, I see it a lot in politics today, not to I'm trying to avoid getting into politics. I mean, I've deleted like five episodes in the last three days. I'm not even kidding. In the last week, I've like every time I've gone for a walk, last night I I recorded a two-hour episode that I'll never release. I just, because I'm just, I got to talk about things. It's not that there's anything I don't normally say or I wouldn't otherwise say, but I'm just like, this is another time where I'm just, I'm so infected right now that I just end up deleting stuff. But anyway, you can see it with politics where like a new catchphrase comes about and people are eager to use it, especially when they can use it to target somebody, to attack somebody, to criticize somebody. I mean, you look at the way misinformation, I'm really shocked. I mean, I'm not shocked, but I didn't expect the whole, you know, when the media and social media, you know, the media and social media, no, when, when the corporate media and social media and just. Politicians started talking about misinformation and disinformation. I didn't really expect people to pick up on that so much, but I'm just noticing now how many people are constantly saying, I think he's spreading misinformation. Oh, that's misinformation. They've really latched onto that more than I expected. And it's funny to me because it's like that's a word that's been around forever. But the way people use it, you can see where they use the word misinformation in a way that is actually misinformative, if that's a word. Like they are actually spreading misinformation by calling certain things misinformation. So it's this meta game. And that's sort of what happens with language. That sort of happened. That's what happens with buzzwords is that they very quickly become the thing they're describing. And uh, you can see that with misinformation, disinformation, where it's like you're actually the one spreading misinformation by calling everything and anything you disagree with misinformation. And on that note, too, I've noticed with the fact checkers, the fact checkers, I've noticed the phrase misleading coming up a lot. They'll say, Bill Gates, like I saw a headline that was like, Bill Gates comments about this, or it's like what people are saying about this video of Bill Gates is misleading. And you know if they're saying misleading, that uh, it's not actually misinformation. Because if it was flat out false, they just say that. Like if the fact checkers are saying that something is false, they'll just say, this is false. This is wrong. When they say misleading, you know that they're being manipulative. Because what does that mean? A oh, misleading. People are responding to something they heard somebody say or saw somebody say in a certain way. And so by saying it's misleading, they're saying... It's actually correct what that person said or did, but we don't like the way those people are contextualizing it. You know what? I don't like the way a lot of people contextualize things. I wouldn't use the word misleading, but just pay attention. Anytime you notice that these media outlets, these fact checkers, these experts, anytime they're using the phrase misleading, they're talking about something that they can't disprove but they're trying to spin it just something to pay attention to an interesting little twist of language and so much of this stuff centers around language and that's something I've noticed a big difference between left-wing people I pay attention to and right-wing people is I noticed the left is far more preoccupied with language like I was listening to this discussion people were having it was a sort of a, a free for all discussion that people were having with their voices and they were talking about a very controversial issue and i noticed that everybody who chimed in from the left and not that everybody else was on the right but just the people who were distinctly on the left who seemed to seemed to be possessed by these leftist talking points they all wanted to discuss words they all wanted to completely they wanted to turn the conversation into this dissection of individual words to the point of abstraction like they want it, it, it was it was just complete gibberish at that point. And you, and you see that a lot where there's a, a heavy preoccupation with specific words. And you notice too it's the left who is continually coming up with new words and telling you to stop using old words. But you can never rest because it's constantly changing. And that's one of the main ways that they lash out is by being like, you used the wrong word. That word means this now. Or that word has always meant that. And I'm not just talking about slurs. I'm not talking about obvious stuff like where it's like, oh, don't use this slur against people. It's become so much more mutant than that. It's talked about the same way but it becomes this dissection of terminology rather than a discussion of the ideas and I've noticed this over and over again, but it was about a week and a half ago. I was listening to this discussion a rare discussion between people with differing viewpoints and of course it became heated, but I was listening to these people debate which you don't really hear much of these days, but I noticed that everybody who was chiming in on the left wanted to get in this abstract argument about specific words rather than the ideas. And the person who was hosting this discussion was a black man who um, was giving a lot of pushback on on many of the leftist talking points. A black man who... I don't know if he's conservative, but he's certainly sympathetic with what's going on. Uh, He's definitely sympathetic with the conservative side of things. But it was nice because he, he was when people would do that, he would just immediately shut them down. Like he knew what they were doing. Like people would try to get into this dissection of specific words and like, don't you realize that that word means this? And that connects to this. And, like, it was very abstract what they were trying to do. And they were very preoccupied with words and language, these placeholder words. Meanwhile, the host, the black man, he would just cut them off right there. And then, you know, it was funny to listen to because he knew exactly what they were doing right as they started. And what was interesting is I don't think they did. I don't think that they understood what they were actually doing because I think that so much of the so many of the conversations that go on on that side of things really are this in-depth conversation about like words and they'll they'll create etymologies they'll manufacture etymologies and it's, it's it's very strange to witness and it's not like I'm a person who believes words have no power words have a lot of power we know words have we know words have power But they're also placeholders. You know, you have to acknowledge the power of words while realizing that the word is still a string of symbols representing an idea or a phenomenon. So, you know, I understand the power of words, but you can't get too caught up in them. And, uh, you know, changing the words doesn't remove the idea. Like when they tell you you can't say a certain word. That doesn't change how people feel about what's being described. Like people still feel the same way about the idea. It doesn't matter what you call it. If it's a real, if it's something tangible that you can witness or experience or observe... You will continue to observe that thing regardless of what it's called. Like I'm looking at a tape gun right now. I'm like one of those freestyle rappers who just looks around the room and raps about things in the room. Got the kitchen sink. I'm gonna get a drink because there's a cup over here. I open up the fridge and I see a beer. I don't have any beer, but you know, it's funny, like like people who are improvising, they'll just look at objects around the room. There's a guy in a the hat. There's baseball on the TV. He's swinging the bat. Sounds like Joe Pesci's uh, wise guy rap. Joe Pesci released that album in the 90s, and there's that rap song called, like, I'm a wise guy. We don't do drive-bys. We just stop by. With a couple of guys that's how it goes (laughs) I love it it's got Frank Vincent it's just like a mafia rap song and it's but it's just Joe Pesci doing that sort of delivery but I love that we don't do drive bys we just stop by with a couple of guys (laughs) but uh anyway uh I'm looking at a tape gun right now and it's it's sort of like if you told me that you can't call that a tape gun because it has the word gun in it. You know, by, by calling that a tape gun, you are normalizing guns. By calling that tape gun a gun, you are normalizing guns. And that leads to violence. By the, the fact that you are normalizing firearms by calling that tape dispenser a tape gun, you are enabling insane, you're, na- you're enabling mass shooters, Using the word gun normalizes gun violence. But if you told me that, like, you can't say the word tape gun anymore. It's still, it's still the exact same object. It's not going to change how I perceive that object. It still has a certain function. And even if I'm not allowed to say the word tape gun, I'm still going to think of it that way. And it's still going to have the same function it does. And that example, I mean, is that that far off from the conversations we're hearing about language? Is that, yeah, that example I just gave is silly and funny. Is it that far off from some of the conversations we hear? It isn't. But uh, it doesn't change what that thing is. And there is a certain amount of mind control to it, though. But you have to get lost in the language to have your mind controlled by that. You know, it reminds me of what my mom wrote down on that post-it note before she died, which was anyone convinced against their will is of the same opinion still. That applies to language. If you tell somebody they can't say a word and that word is simply a convenient way of describing something, it doesn't change the thing that's being described if it is truly happening. I mean, if you want to talk about slurs, like if you tell somebody they can't use a certain slur, there might be good to that. I mean, there is good to that where it's like, yeah, don't call somebody that name. Don't call somebody that name. It's nasty. It's cruel. That makes sense to me. But do you think you're actually going to change that person's impression of those people? Do you think that not allowing somebody to use a slur is going to change their perception of that person? It's not. But I understand telling people not to use a certain slur for a certain person. I understand that, of course. You know, I understand that it's very difficult to operate in a civil society if people are yelling out nasty slurs at each other. But you're still not getting to the root of the issue. But I understand the power of words. I love words. Words have a lot of power to me. They have a lot of meaning. Like when I started meditating, I remember saying internally, not saying it out loud, but saying the word love and the word God. And I felt something. But they're still placeholder words. You know, God and love are still placeholder words. But when I was meditating, those words did something. I wouldn't be able to explain what it is. But including those words in my own internal mantra, it did something. Maybe that's because I I know what they represent. But to be honest, I'm a little resistant to that. Because those words have been overused and abused and they're so loaded that I didn't even want to use those words. But the fact that including the words God and love in a mantra. It was interesting to me that almost against my will. I felt a change in my body and mind and maybe even my spirit probably more my spirit than anything. And I won't go on too much about that, but it was really interesting to me because I was like simply saying those words, like I felt it's almost like my face relaxed. It's almost like my brain untensed. It was like, I would describe it as a feeling of openness. So that's powerful. That tells me those words are powerful, but it's also what those words are communicating. It's not that the words God and love are... uh, themselves the the point of it all but i recognize they're also placeholders and that's why people get that's why people are so uncomfortable with the idea of god because they imagine something very specific when you say it and the fact that different religions in different languages have a, a similar if not the same concept of what god is but we get caught up in the fact that somebody calls it allah that somebody else calls it god that somebody else calls it somebody else so it's the words are powerful if that has meaning to you but it's very easy to get distracted by the words too and that's what we see all up and down the entire spectrum of language from unimportant words and phrases to ones that are very important and meaningful to us we get you know it's very easy to get caught up and forget that they're just placeholders But what they're referring to isn't necessarily trivial, you know, despite that. So it's, it's kind of an interesting dilemma. But I do see language as a form of mind control where, you know, just going back to the misinformation idea, like the number of people who are like, that's misinformation, and they no longer even know what that's referring to. Simply discussing something, simply having an opinion can be called misinformation. One that's gotten surprisingly big too, and I, I've started to see it all the time, is grifter. It's become heavily politicized where people will say, oh, he's a left-wing grifter. Oh, he's just a right-wing grifter. Oh, that Twitch star, that communist Twitch star, he's just a left-wing grifter. He's just making a bunch of money he's claiming to be a socialist while making a billion billion dollars on Twitch. He's a grifter. Oh him, he's just a right-wing grifter. Like I hear people refer to uh anybody who's basically willing to have a conversation with the right wing. I hear it more used for them. There's people who are very, you know, they're leftists as far as I'm concerned but they also reject what's going on on the left people like, you know, independent journalists, like, you know, Glenn Greenwald, and Matt Taibbi guys like that, who I see them often referred to as grifters because they are willing to engage in talking points that conservatives like right now, because a lot of it revolves around free speech. A lot of it revolves around coercion. And true independence tend to gravitate toward whoever's less coercive. But it's interesting to me that doing that gets you called a grifter now, but I won't go too deep into that. But just how much I see that word used now. I started to see it here or there, but it's just picked up. It's it's a, a buzzword. And it doesn't really have any meaning anymore because that's what you see happen is that somebody learns a new phrase that might be relevant when it's first used. Like there are certainly people who become political pundits and they cater to a certain audience to profit, to gain status. People do that. It's not like that doesn't happen. Maybe grifter is an appropriate way to describe them. It's not a new word. It's been used to describe people who do that forever. But you can see where it took off as a new buzzword. And as a result, the meaning is completely gone. And people just use it to describe somebody who's entertaining thoughts and ideas and talking to people who they themselves disagree with. It's ad hominem. So you should always be careful about buzzwords that are describing another person because it really just does become ad hominem, it just becomes a generic insult. You know, I've been talking about buzzwords and catchphrases here that are politically loaded, but I think it's also true for words of any kind, phrases of any kind, and you should be careful when adopting them too quickly. And I'm trying to think of an example here of a, you know, it's it's hard actually to think of examples of this that aren't politically loaded right now. And that should tell you something. The fact that I can't even think of examples off the top of my head, even though I'm always paying attention to this and always have, I mean, I think slang, let's go with that. Let's go with um, like a new word for cool. The cool thing about the word cool is that it's still cool. Everyone knows what that means. I don't know if young people are still using it as much. But I mean, cool is a phrase that... I don't know when it became popular. But people were using it in the 1950s. You know, in the 1950s, people would be like, That's a cool car. Oh yeah, he's real cool, man. You would hear greasers talk about that. Talk like that. So... You know, the, the term cool to mean good, to mean something that's, I mean, I, the, the, the thing about cool is I don't even know how to describe what it's referring to without using the word cool. What is, what is, how would you describe something that's cool? The word cool is used to describe things that are cool. It's almost become its own meaning. But, uh. It remained relevant for decades like you think about how slang changes and like my generation had a lot of new slang but we still said cool all the time i don't know about zomers i don't know if zomers still say things are cool but uh that's one that hasn't gone away but but younger generations especially now in the digital age Have tried to keep inventing new ones. And the example I always use is fire. Oh, dude, that's fire. And I don't know how much of that is just people verbalizing an emoji, an emoji. Because there's this flame emoji. I don't know if people calling things fire predated this emoji that people started using. And I mean and now that's old hat now old people call things fire now old people are using flame emojis corporations are like if you see like huge corporations social media pages they very quickly adapt whatever the slang was three six months ago three to six months ago they adapt way more quickly it used to be where like if you're watching tv commercials It took so long to produce them that when TV commercials would try to use current slang, they would always be like a couple years behind. By the time that a Burger King commercial was airing on television, whatever attempt to be hip it was trying to convey was already way outdated. And as a result, you laugh at it. Like in the past if a phrase like fire became popular and Burger King was like try our new uh, try our, our new double whopper it's fire you know if that happened people would make fun of it because the term fire would have been outdated by a couple years it would have already been uncool because that's the interesting thing is that you know newer catchphrases and buzzwords no matter how popular they are They have a short shelf life. Oftentimes, unless the word cool managed to stay cool from at least the 1950s through the 2000s, like high school students could say something is cool in the 1950s and they could say it was cool in the early 2000s when I was in high school and nobody thought anything about it. But newer buzzwords, newer slang, comes and goes much more quickly and that's even more true in the digital age where people are continually and part of that is because uncool people adopt it that much quicker like teenagers who call something fire five years ago six years ago their parents are picking up on that because everyone's using social media everyone's paying attention to the the super quick you know they're all paying attention to the same platforms, I guess is what I would say. And so everything is super quick. It comes quickly and it leaves quickly. I don't know if fire came from people just using the emoji and then verbalizing that, but it became a new way to say cool, which is funny. And that shows you the placeholder nature of all this shit too. Cause it's like the word cool. It means something is cold. It means something is low in temperature in case you didn't know. The word fire is hot, but yet they refer to the same thing. Calling something cool is essentially the same as calling something fire or hot. That's hot. They refer to the same thing, something that is desirable, that is good. But we're using words that have opposite definitions to describe that same thing. So that that alone should tell you the word isn't what's important. The word isn't the most important part of that. What it is describing is the fact that you could use two words that have not just different definitions, but completely opposite definitions that are actually antonyms. That should tell you that it's not even about the words themselves, but yet the words do kind of start to embody that thing. Just like I'm saying, like, I don't know how to describe something that's cool without using the word cool. So the word kind of starts to embody that thing, but it's still not really about the word itself. But anytime someone's too quick to adopt slang, I don't completely trust them because it's not natural. And if you've ever tried to do that, if you've ever tried to adopt slang, new slang, it doesn't feel natural coming out of your mouth. Like even just using the term fire, which I've never used to describe anything, but even just me using that now does not feel natural. Like if I were to say, oh dude, like, uh, I heard this guitar riff that was totally fire. I feel like a poser just saying that, but like anything, you say it enough and it becomes a reality. And I, my friends and I learned that the hard way in high school. When we started smoking weed, because, you know, the big word at that time was tight. First time I ever heard the word tight, I was in, uh, I think, a, a Target or a Toys R Us, like some place that had a like a Nintendo 64 or a video game system set up that you could play in the store. And I saw this little Mexican kid playing it. He was younger than I was, and I was pretty young, but he was by himself just playing this video game, talking to himself And he kept going, that's tight. Oh, that's tight. And it was the first time I'd ever heard a human being use the word tight to mean cool. And I was like, that must be new. That must be like a Mexican thing or something. That must be like a different group of people are using the word tight. And then about a year later, it was not immediately after. It was definitely, I would say, around a year later. I started to notice that a few kids, like the Wiggers. I started to notice that the wiggers around my school were saying tight. And I was like, that's what that kid said. And next thing you knew, that was the new phrase. Like, if you wanted to communicate to your peers that you were hip, you started using tight. That's tight. The stoners liked it. The wiggers and the stoners loved tight. But you'd, you'd hear girls, you'd hear like popular girls be like, dude, that was so tight. And so suddenly this new language made its rounds. And when my friends and I started smoking weed heavily in high school, we would say it as a joke. Like we'd be driving around or we'd be doing something. We'd look at something and be like, that's tight. And we'd laugh because the joke was that none of us talked that way. And we all thought it was silly that people were using that word. But guess what? We used it a few times the joke started to become kind of real where all of a sudden like tight meant something to us, especially when we were stoned, where we would look at something and be like, that actually is tight, (laughs) you know? And so you repeat something, you fake it until you make it. And a joke can become real to you. And none of us talk that way anymore. None of us say things are tight, but you use that kind of ironically, you call things tight, You do that enough times and and next thing you know, you're using it and you mean it. And so it's true, even if you're not joking, where it's like the first time you say new slang. Like I imagine like for everybody, because you hear other people say it and you go, it doesn't sound right coming out of your mouth. You hear somebody say, oh dude, that was totally fire. And you go, it doesn't sound right coming out of your mouth. It doesn't sound natural. It sounds like you're trying to communicate that you're hip especially coming from people past a certain age, like I expect that of teenagers. But because the internet and the fact that everybody is looking at the same things now, because everybody is getting their information and experiencing the world in a way that is, uh, you know, they're all getting their information from the same places. Now, you can see where this has given older people a great opportunity to stay hip, hip. But you'll hear it come out of someone's mouth and you're just like, it doesn't sound right coming from you. But that person can say that enough and next thing you know, it just comes out naturally. But it's novelty. You know, what I'm talking about is novelty because it's like we're so bored by everything that when we have something new, oh, there's a new phrase I can use. There's a new word I can use. Fire. Fire. There's a part of you that's eager to use it, but I try to wait until something is truly part of things. Like I've used the example on here before with the word selfie, where when the word selfie started making its rounds, I refuse to use it. It's a stupid word. We all know it's a stupid word, but no dumber than movie. I probably would have felt the same way about the word movie, what they used to call talkies, there's a stupid word. It's a talkie. Oh, are you going to go see a talkie? And it's called a talkie because it's people talking. You know, It's called a talkie because people are talking in it. Silent films have become talkies. And then they became movies. Why is it called a movie? Because it's a moving picture. Very advanced language there. It's a movie. But we don't think about that. You know, when you say movie... You don't think about the fact that you're just saying, I'm calling it a movie because it moves. It's very primitive. But over time, that just becomes the word. And when you say movie, you don't think about what it means. It just a movie is a movie. How do I describe a movie? It's a movie. Selfie is the same way, where it's like when I first heard that, I was like, that sounds so stupid. It's no more, it's no stupider than... Talkie or movie, but it was new and there was this technological component. And, you know, there's so much pushback on just selfies themselves. Like, I think some of the resistance to the word selfie came from resistance to the idea of a selfie, this idea of a photo of yourself from a certain perspective, a photo that you're taking of yourself. But there reached a point where I realized, like, I don't like the word selfie, but it's not going anywhere. That is the word to describe that thing. And so I use it now if I have to. I'm not going around going, like, it's a selfie. And old people picked up on it. Like, I, I remember older pe- seeing older people who, like, their, their grandkid wanted to take a photo with them. And they're like, come here, grandma. Come here, grandpa. And, like, the joke is that, like, I'm taking a selfie with my grandpa. And if the grandpa like learned that word, they'd be like, is this what they call a selfie? And you could see where they were kind of like excited to be using the new word. Oh, this is, I'm I'm participating in what they call a selfie. But that word just became the word for that. And I I can't, I don't have a better word. And I might, every time I'm referring to that, I'm going to say a photograph in which the person uses portrait mode to take their own picture, to take a self-portrait. You know, am I going to use that long form description of it every time? No, I'm just going to say selfie. So it's a matter of convenience. And I accepted it once the word just became the word once I knew that it was here to stay. So that's kind of my approach to it. Like, I don't like to be a late adopter to very many things. Like, I'm a jewel hunter. And so... I don't like to hop on trends. I don't like to be one of the last people to do something. None of us do. You know, none of us like to be the last person to hop on a trend. But I'm willing to do that with language sometimes because I don't trust it. (laughs) I don't trust language enough to be one of the first people to use new slang. I don't trust language enough to use a new catchphrase or buzzword. Because I know that there's a much higher chance that it's going to disappear and I'll have to live with the fact that I called things fire for like three months to be hip. So I'm very conservative when it comes to language where even though I invent my own words for things that are often stupid, if you listen to this show, you know that, that I say a bunch of stupid things. But I mean, this shows a good example of the way that you normalize your language too, where like, I have to remind myself not to say coronavi to people who don't know this show, which is most people I know. Like, I was, when I was having that free speech argument with people at the beginning of this year, I referred to coronavirus as coronavi. And I realized, like, I, they have no idea what I'm talking about. I probably sound insane. But there are certain little things I say on here, like Trumpsfeld. I've used that on accident with people. And not even by accident, it's just I say Trumpsfeld. And it's so stupid. What's funny about that, not to explain my jokes, but what's so funny about Trumpsfeld is it's so freaking stupid to call him that. But yet it's funny to me. But I've called him Trumpsfeld and I've called coronavirus Coronivi. But I've now been using, I mean, I've been using Trumpsfeld for years. And I've been using Coronivai for the better part of two years now. And I do it all the time. So that's kind of become normal to me to call it that. And it always pissed me off just to go on a tangent here. But like, it, it always pissed me off when people called it like the Rona. Yo, dude, the Rona, because other people obviously, you know, I like that other people saw the, the I like that other people wanted to make fun of the name, too. Like, I liked that other people were like, how can I use, how can I come up with a ridiculous term for the Koronevi? The I liked that other people went with Rona in the sense that they were kind of making a joke of it. But I hated the way it sounded. Like, when people say the Rona, it, it sounded to me like, like they listened to rap. Like, that's, that's like what people who listen to rap would say. I'm a Koronevi. I'm Team Koronevi. But I have to remind myself that that's not normal. It's not normal to call it that, and nobody has any idea what you're talking about and And that phrase even started because I started calling it like corony violent, not to be confused with violence, although I like that too, corony violence, but no, corona violent like we're stuck on corony violent or something was the origin of that, and now it's just corona vi. But I wouldn't call it anything else. I like that phrase. But anyway, like you can see we're repeating something often enough, and it just becomes part of how you talk. It's a blessing and a curse. But uh, there's a cheapness to it. And so I am very conservative with language when I'm conservative with new language that other people have adopted. Because either it's just them trying to be cool and current, which I never trust, or it has some sort of political weight to it, like calling people grifters, calling things misinformation. And it loses its meaning. You know, it completely loses its meaning when you do that, when you repeat that. And... You don't want to you don't want something to lose its meaning. You know, you don't want to adopt a phrase that's going to quickly expand its meaning, distort its own meaning. And when people call somebody a grifter, 99 times out of 10, not 9 out of 10, 99.9 times out of 10, when I see somebody using that phrase now, what they're saying is, this person is saying things I don't agree with to an audience I hate. Well, I don't trust you. You know, I don't trust you. If you're using that as ad hominem, because they're real grifters. There are people who are actually trying to um, capitalize on a certain audience. There are people who are actually trying to milk certain people. They've always existed. Grifters have always existed. But when you're using that phrase exclusively to refer to somebody who you simply don't agree with, who has an audience that you hate, You're untrustworthy. And, you know, my my whole stance of like, I try to trust everybody because the bullshit will cancel itself out. You know, taking on that viewpoint in recent years where it's like, I'm going to try to be more trusting in the same way. I'm not going to be a misanthrope in the same way that I'm not going to be somebody who goes out into the world and thinks everybody's stupid. Oh, everybody who disagrees with me is stupid. Really interesting how that works. Everybody who disagrees with you is stupid. It's incredible. But uh, in the same way I refuse to take that on, I have tried to go out with the basic guideline of like, oh, I'm going to try to trust everybody. Because one, like I have strong boundaries. Like by giving people the benefit of the doubt, it's not that I'm necessarily weakening my defense. I'm a guarded person by nature. So by trying to trust people, it's not like I'm trusting every single person who makes some empty promise. It's not like I'm going out and like if somebody says like, hey, uh, if you uh, if you give me five dollars, I'm going to go down the street and invest it and come back and give you ten dollars. It's not like I'm stupid. It's not like I'm stupid. But just giving people the benefit of the doubt and just operating from a place of trust where it's like, I'm going to trust that this person means well, even if they're wrong, even if they're misguided. And if I trust everybody, well, that's kind of the same as not trusting anybody. The net result ends up being similar, where it's like, if I trust everybody, the bullshit will cancel itself out because my bullshit detector still works. And when somebody does seem extremely untrustworthy, well, that detector, that alarm is going to go off. But I have to say, it's been a real test. I mean, anytime you take that stance, it's a real test. It's like me saying, I refuse to call people NPCs. I refuse to call people NPCs because my natural tendency is to think of people that way. And when you look at some online comment section, and most of the people ...aren't just expressing the same sentiment... ...but they're expressing it in the same words... ...often using buzzwords. That's a crazy phenomenon... ...where a bunch of people... ...aren't just in agreement... ...they are actually expressing themselves identically. It's very difficult to see that... ...and to not go, oh, it's an NPC. And my natural tendency you know, is to see people in those sorts of terms. It it is to sort of see people as kind of generic, uncreative. So I have to be very careful about thinking that way. And I don't want to dehumanize people by seeing them as NPCs. I don't want to go out in the world and see people as dumb because I know how easy it is to feel that way. And the last year and a half, two years, has been a real test in that way. Where if you see what people are saying and doing, it is very difficult to not to look at that and not think, "Oh, they're being a bunch of NPCs." Oh, look at these NPCs. You know, it's very difficult to not think that way. So it's it's a good test. It's good that I feel tested. Because it's, it's, you know, it's very easy to just be in your own little world, not paying attention to anything, not talking to many people, not seeing what people are saying, not hearing how they're expressing themselves. It's easy just to be a monk and think like, oh, I trust everybody and nobody's an NPC. The real test is when you actually pay attention. Because you have a million opportunities every day to be like, oh, geez, they really are NPCs. But even then, not giving into that. Not giving into that impulse that tells you, geez, people really are dumb. Geez, people really are dumb. You have to put it to the test. It's like any kind of training where it's like you can train to be a fighter. You can get in shape and train to be a fighter. But you don't really know how well you, you know, I mean, I feel, I feel like I'm Tyler Durden. You sound like Tyler Durden. Uh But, you know, you don't actually know until you've actually fought somebody. You don't know if you're a good fighter until you fought somebody. It doesn't matter how much you train. I, I see it the same way where it's like. You don't know, you know your own philosophy about people in particular until you actually interact with people and observe people. And I like to test myself in that way. But it is difficult when you see everybody saying the same thing, when you see people using whatever the new catchphrase is, whatever the new buzzword is. It's hard to look at that and be like, these are people who think critically these are self-aware people who think critically they might not be that i think there's definitely a lack of self-awareness there is a lack of critical thinking and i mean there was a guy who wrote an uh, a new york times editorial i mean this is the state of journalism and yeah i understand editorials are opinions but editorials have really bled in with uh, you know what's supposed to be Objective journalism where it's very hard when you're when you're reading a Corporate newspaper, it's very difficult to make a distinction between editorial and what's intended to be objective Journalism because they've both bled into each other, but there was an article in the New York Times where the heading was about how critical thinking is bad for democracy or something to that effect it was like, you know, we've we've learned to the the point of the editorial was we've learned to value critical thinking, but it turns out critical thinking is not good for us. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? I can, because I saw it. But it blew my mind just that that's where things are at. Where there's actually corporate newspapers just saying explicitly we might have been wrong to encourage everybody to think critically because it's, it's creating more misinformation. Don't think about things. Things are on that level, and that's not a one-off. That isn't a one-off. I mean, we saw where some of the talking points going on in academia say that critical thinking is a symptom of white supremacy too, and that's another one. You know, you can see where all of this ad hominem, all of these terms, we widen the definitions. You know, it's a way to coerce people. It's a way to control people. And you end up sounding like some, you you end up, the thing is, is to talk about what's going on. You end up sounding like somebody who's like, you ever read 1984? Oh, we're living in 1984. Oh my God, we're living in 1984. And I've never read 1984. But then you see people argue about that, where they're like, you keep you keep talking about 1984, but did you actually understand 1984? And it's like, let's just let go of 1984 in general and just describe things how they are. It's like I was saying about Martin Luther King Jr. and people like that, where people are like, look at Martin Luther King Jr. said this about riots. Well, Martin Luther King Jr. felt this about the color of someone's skin, can't you just figure it out on your own? Or if you do have to use somebody else's words, aren't there people living now who are saying things that you consider relevant? Like why does a guy who died in the 1960s, why do you need his words to understand what's going on now? Yeah, a lot of it's... There's a lot of parallels. There are a lot of similarities. A lot of it deals with the same thing. But why do you need a dead man? Well, it's because he's, he's deified. It's scripture. The way people talk about Martin Luther King Jr. quotes is like people having an argument about a biblical quote. Well, I think what the Bible said... Well, when the Bible said, uh, a man shall not lay next to another man... He meant that gay people need to be sent to camps where they're convinced with electric shock not to be gay. Well, no, I think the, Bi- the Bible didn't actually say anything about abortion. You know, you see arguments like that, and that's how it feels when people are debating Martin Luther King Jr. quotes. So they're like, well, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. said that uh, riots were good because of blah, blah, blah. Well, no, but there was this quote from Martin Luther King Jr. where he said uh, riots are bad. And uh, there's a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. where he said, you know, don't see the color of a person's skin. And you're saying that it's all about race. You know, you see where people argue about that. And it's like, don't you trust yourself enough? Don't you trust somebody who's living now? Why are you arguing about that? But I also understand where that comes from. We deify people. We turn people's words into scripture, but like religious scripture, we then argue about the meaning of it. And that's very similar to what I was talking about, about certain people getting into these language arguments where the conversation is no longer about the ideas and it's about a word. And that's not going to go anywhere. I mean, if you're interested in language, if you're talking about language itself, that's an interesting conversation. But if you're trying to use that for your cause, because that's where a lot of this comes from, like, I don't mind people dissecting a word. I do that all the time. I'm very interested in etymology. I'm very interested in language and how it changes and how it's used. I find that interesting. But when I'm talking about that, I'm not trying to explain You know, I'm not trying to, um, I'm not trying to get into a political argument about a word or language. And uh, I feel the same way about like when people are debating scripture or debating a quote from a famous person. But people seem to need that. Like they seem to use that as evidence. Like, please respect somebody who said something poignant please find value and meaning in something that some significant figure said once you're welcome to do that but you're using it like it's like the way people talk about that stuff is like they're in court and they're drawing from precedent Like in, in uh, Martin versus the Board of Education, whatever it's called, in Brown versus the Board of Education, it set they established blah, 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 which set a precedent that we can use now. It's like people do that, but just with random quotes from people. And it kind of, the 1984 thing makes me think of it, because people will quote 1984, but everybody quotes 1984. Two people with opposing viewpoints can read the same passage of text from 1984 and apply it to their enemy. Oh, it doesn't, because I saw that a lot with Trumpsfeld where people who hated Trumpsfeld would be like, what he's doing? Doesn't that remind you of 1984? Oh my God, Trumpsfeld's in office. uh, It reminds me of 1984 because he did blah, blah, blah. And you see that with the opposite now where it's like, oh, look at what they're doing. It reminds me a lot of 1984. And you know what? I'm not saying it I'm not saying it's not relevant because obviously I ha- I haven't read it but 1984 obviously came from Orwell Orwell it obviously came from Orwell's ability to recognize certain patterns it obviously came from a certain understanding of human nature especially when humans create institutions that govern our lives, you know, obviously, he was referring to real tendencies in people, which is why it speaks to so many people. But like, you don't need to reference 1984 to refer to what's going on now, because simply describing it as it is should be enough. And you actually do yourself a disservice, because you end up getting into arguments about 1984. When you try to use quotes from 1984 to refer to what's going on, you end up in an argument with some guy who hates you about how 1984 doesn't actually apply to that. And Orwell really meant this. No, Orwell wasn't referring to communism. Orwell was referring to fascism. You know, you end up in that argument. It's like the language argument where you end up arguing about the words. You end up arguing about abstraction simply describe things as they are now. And that's something you see too with World War Two. World War Do? You're talking about What War Do What would World War Two do? I mean, that's sort of what we're in. It's like the way people draw from World War Two. It's sort of like what would World War Two do? Where it's like, doesn't this remind and people, you know, they that hyperbole like World War Two is done as a comparison it's become the the only example people use to refer to a totalitarian leader it's become the only example people use when referring to genocide it's it's run its course as far as using it as some sort of analog for events going on today. And it's especially run its course because it's been so hyperbolic, hyperbolic, hyperbolics. But it's like when the left started referring to any and everybody who they disagree with as Hitler, or a Nazi, that obviously lost meaning. And then I saw recently where like a lot of people are getting pushback for comparing Australian quarantine. Remember the, the Corona quarantine? You heard of Clementine? Well, this is quarantine. But, uh, you can see where like Australia has quarantine camps and people have said they are forced to go there against their will. We know that several, uh, Aboriginal kids escaped from one, and they sent police after them, and I saw a video of it that happened. But people are like, oh, look, it's World War II all over again. Australia is putting people in concentration camps, and those kind of remind me of World War II death camps. Death camps. And I understand why people say that. I have a lot of, uh, I find it highly questionable at best that people are being sent to camps against their will. But when you use a World War II analog, you end up arguing about World War II. You end up arguing about whether that's a good comparison and you're no longer talking about the, the thing that's happening right now. And I've seen where there's been a lot of pushback from people on the left because the right wing now are the ones saying like we have, you know, these leaders are acting like Hitler and they're sending people to camps kind of reminds you of uh, Auschwitz, Auschwitz, doesn't it? You know, people are saying things like that, but then that opens up the opportunity for someone who disagrees to say it's nothing like Auschwitz. It's nothing like the genocide. It's nothing like a holocaust. People end up gatekeeping that term. There's a buzzword. You just gatekeeping. That's one that came about a few years ago, where like somebody started using gatekeeping to refer to somebody who's basically trying to control a given subject, and it refers to something real. But you can see where gatekeeping became something that now people accuse each other of for any and every reason. You gatekeeping. But you can see where people do gatekeep that subject. But what's so funny about that is just that it's like the hyperbole already ruined World War II comparisons years ago. And so people on the right should know better. And not even just people on the right, but anybody who is opposed to vaccine mandates, anybody who's opposed to the idea of sending people to a camp for any reason against their will. You know, they should know better than to turn around and say, hey, you now this is like World War II, World War II, what would World War II do? Well, what would World War II do? You know, they should know better because they know that that turns into a spiraling nonsense argument where you're now arguing about the comparison rather than the reality, You know, so you should know better and you don't need to use it because here's the thing. Let's say that a situation is happening right now that is exactly like World War Two. Let's say that a genocidal totalitarian despot is in charge of a country and he is sending people to death camps. Just say that. Don't compare it to anything. You don't even need to draw from precedent. If you have evidence or reason to believe that a totalitarian despot is sending people to death camps, say that. Don't compare them to Hitler. Don't compare it to the Holocaust. Just say exactly what it is, describe it exactly as it is. I understand why people use comparisons, I use comparisons. I use analogies, but certain comparisons and analogies run their course. Drawing from certain sources runs its course, and you should realize that at a certain point, you can't compare things to 1984 and Hitler anymore. And you know what? You do become an NPC when you do that. Even though I don't believe in NPCs, you become one. You become what people call an NPC when you start acting that way. Because you start running off of a script. Your argument with somebody becomes scripted. And that's what people are basically referring to when they call people NPCs. It's someone who seems to be running off a script. So do what you can to not do that. And if if you're saying or doing something that feels scripted or feels programmed, stop doing it or don't do it at all. And when you start using a new buzzword or catchphrase, I can guarantee you that's a script. It's an algorithm. Don't do it. You know, you undermine yourself when you do that. Even if it's something totally innocuous, even if it's man cave, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't start referring to a certain room in the house. Don't start referring to a garage that's been converted into a place where the guys hang out. Oh, it, they turned. They put a couch in their garage and insulated it. They insulated their garage and put a couch in it. And this. This. A pool table and and pictures of women on the walls it's a man cave it's a man cave you know just don't call it that I know that's a ridiculous one like it's not a crime to call it a man cave but it's like anytime a new phrase comes out you should not trust it like if you start hearing a new word or a new phrase over and over again you should be skeptical you should be cynical And we live in a time now where most of the new phrases are politically charged, they're manipulative, they're designed to undermine somebody else and so you should be even more cynical and skeptical of that phrase and you should not adopt it and you should never forget the power of a description. Never forget that sometimes simply describing something is much more effective. And it might reach a point where you need to use a single word for brevity. Like, oh, I'm so sick of typing all this out. I'm so sick of saying something out loud that takes me an entire minute to say it. Well, take the time to keep doing that. And maybe occasionally, sparingly. It's like seasoning, man. It's like, it's like a little catchphrases and buzzwords. You should use them like seasoning. Just sprinkle a little bit. Just give a pinch. That's the attitude you should take to them, though. If you have to use them, if they are particularly good, if they're particularly effective, and you have to use them sometimes, or sometimes just for the sake of brevity, it's easier. But make sure that person knows what you're talking about. Make sure the person you're talking to, like make sure when you're using buzzwords and catchphrases, make sure that that person actually understands what you're referring to. And it's always worth taking the time to describe something.